Buenos dias, everybody. And greetings from Mexico. It's um, really wonderful to be here. I usually try to come up at least August and September because uh, it gets very humid. Not only is it hot where I live, but it gets exceedingly humid and it gets very oppressive. And um, so this time of year in Portland is fantastic, is it not? So this is a good time to be here. <clears throat> and I'm, I feel grateful to Larry to um, have me give this talk this morning. So it's fun. I haven't done this for a long time. Um, he's working with this book called Gifts of Imperfection. And I really encourage you to pick up this book in the, in the Open Mind Bookstore. There's some just really wonderful jewels in here that I think will assist you in re-examining your own life and how you might look at some of the um, willingness that you have in your own heart to be more of who you actually are, which is the expression of spirit. And everything about you is perfection itself. Um, the talk title today that he gave me was Resilient Spirit. And resiliency is, as she defines it, the ability to overcome adversity. How many of you have overcome adversity in your life? Every single person, right? Every single one of us has had some event or occurrence or situation in our own life to overcome. And most of us have done that pretty well. Some of us still have issues around some of those places of adversity. Some of us have a subscription. But um, So one of the things that she talks about in this book, she, she outlines three um, concepts or components of the ability to be resilient in our lives. One of them is practical, practicing critical awareness, and another one is cultivating hope. And the third, which I'm going to spend quite a bit of time on today, is letting go of numbing. But there's one common denominator that underlines every single person. That they, she's been doing research for 10 years. Underlying every single person who has overcome, in a positive way, adversity in their lives. And that one thing is spirituality. Every single person had some sense of a power greater than they are working in their lives. And this is her definition of, of what she means by spirituality. Spirituality is recognizing and celebrating that we are all inextricably connected to each other by a power greater than all of us. And that our connection to that power and to one another is grounded in love and compassion. Practicing spirituality brings a sense of perspective, meaning, and purpose to our lives. And then she says, without exception, spirituality emerged as the primary component of resilience. The primary component with every single person, without exception. That means you, because if you were part of her survey, you would have said the same thing. Um, so what we're going to talk about today is the creating a foundation in our own lives to embrace the resilient spirit that lives in each one of us. 
And the first thing that, first piece of this puzzle she talks about is critical awareness. And what she means is questioning in a conscious way, a thought-provoking way, everything that you see, hear, or experience in your daily life, primarily from the media in whatever form that takes, whether it be television, advertisements, looking at magazines, stories that you read, novels, movies, all of it. Question all of it. And the question you ask is, is this real? Most of the time, the answer is going to be no. Because we're biologically trained and conditioned to believe what we see. Are we not? We believe what we see. If we can't see it, then, well, who knows? It's a question mark. But that's part of spirituality, too. But what happens with these images and these ideas that are projected onto us through our subconscious mind over and over and over again, like brainwashing, is that all of these images are edited, photoshopped, overproduced, etc. And so what we're seeing is a made-up image. And don't we always fall short? If you look at a magazine and you see the picture of this beautiful model who is, you know, flawless skin and shiny hair, and th those are the ones that get me the most, the shiny hair part. Um, <laughs> you know, you look at the, and, and even on TV, all these, this hair just glimmers. I mean, I don't know too many people whose hair glimmers. And I always wanted glimmering hair, but I never, I never got it because I always felt short. My hair didn't glimmer, you know. Therefore, I didn't get whatever it was I thought I was supposed to get. So these images we, we see all the time or we hear all the time, and then we compare ourselves and we come up short. Do we not? Do we not come up short? So then we determine that something's wrong with us. We're flawed. We're imperfect. You know, if we were only this, we would have that. I remember when I was about 11 or 12, I had this this huge crush on the boy down the street. Mike Gilbert was his name. And um, I hope he doesn't still live around here. But anyway, um, and I had this huge crush on him, and I would follow him around like a puppy dog. And I'm sure he got really sick of that. He was probably about 14, probably embarrassed him. But anyway, so he kept trying to get rid of me, and he told me that, that I would never, ever have a boyfriend because I was too flat-chested. I lived in the time of Marilyn Monroe. I was too flat-chested, and I looked like I'd been hit by a Mack truck. So as I grew older, I thought, gosh, I kind of look like I got hit by a Mack truck. Maybe that's true. I didn't mind the, not having the Marilyn Monroe figure. That didn't bother me at all. But the Mack truck thing did. And so for a long time, I thought, you know, there's, I'm not going to have a boyfriend. But then when I got into college, they started coming around. So I figured that, you know, I had something else besides that not Mack truck thing going. Anyway... <laughs> But it took a long time because it was still embedded in my mind. And when I would look in the mirror, I would see this person that was hit by a Mack truck. And um, kind of like Bob Hope. Some of you remember Bob Hope. But anyway. So the critical awareness is really important to ask ourselves, is this true? And 99% of the time, it's going to be no. It's not true. It's a made-up thing. The next thing that she talks about is cultivating hope. And she says in the book that hope is not necessarily a feeling. It's a cognitive process. 
and we learn how to have hope. And where do we learn that? Usually by our role models or by trying something. All of you learned hope that you could walk like your parents because you know what one of the hardest things for human beings to do is to learn how to walk, and y'all did it great. Y'all still using those two feet just fine. But that's one of the hardest things for, for, for people to learn is to walk. But you fell down. You tried, you fell down. You got up, you fell down. There were people encouraging you to walk, and so you eventually made it. You didn't give up. You had hope that you could do it because there were people around you that did it. And I know that's kind of a silly thing, but it's true, and that's how we learn hope. But we live in a culture that says it should be easy, fast, and fun. Don't we? should be easy. I should know how to write, write, you know, work that iMac you know, instantaneously. If I get a new computer, I'm supposed to know exactly how to use it. That's why I don't buy one. And <laughs> but it sets us up for hopelessness because if it's not easy, if it's not fun, if we don't get it just like that, we give up. I can't do it. There's something wrong with me. I'm not hardwired for electronics, but whatever we say. That's what I say. Um, so then we, we, we must learn to be more flexible and to persevere in the things that we endeavor so that we build up a sense of hope and know that eventually we can do whatever it is that we set out to do. And one of those things, I was thinking about like when Ken plays the piano, which he does so magnificently, doesn't he? Oh my God, he's just so great. But if I want to learn how to play the piano like, like he does, how long have you been playing the piano, Ken? 40 years. Well, if I take piano lessons from Ken, and in a month I'm not playing like he is, do you think I'm going to be disappointed in myself? Oh, I can't get it. I'm just not any good at this. I better take up banjo. <laughs> you know, but really, 40 years he's been playing. So that's what we do to ourselves. We set ourselves up for disappointment because we give up. But there's a part of us that knows how to do life and knows how to do it really, really well. As Star said in her prayer, we are sacred. That's our identity. The infinite is expressing itself through us all the time in an absolutely magnificent way. We are creative. We are hardwired to be creative. That is what we're about. So we have the ability within us to be hopeful that we can do anything, we can accomplish anything. Hopelessness leads to powerlessness. Powerlessness. I was in that place of powerlessness most of my life. But Ernest Holmes, the founder of Science of Mind, said, there is a power for good in the universe greater than you are, and you can use it. You're all using it anyway, you might as well begin to use it in a conscious way to change your thinking so that you can truly change your experience of life. Martin Luther King said, and I really like this, he said, power is the ability to effect change. Power is the ability to effect change. And you've all used that power because you've all done something in your life that has changed your life. You've moved, you've gotten a new job, you've gotten a, into a relationship, out of a relationship. I mean, look at all the changes that you've made. <laughs> That's true. 
You've made them too, and I've watched some of them. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share a little story about you with you that I think is really sweet. Um, it's about a young girl named Rachel, and she lived in the Seattle area. And she learned about some of the villages in Africa where there was no um, clear water and that the villages would have to walk a long way to get water and bring it back, but it still wasn't very good and people were getting sick. And they determined that it would take about $300 to build a well in this particular village that she had read about. And so she decided on her ninth birthday that instead of presents, she would have everybody bring $9. And that she would start collecting this money to get $300 to build a well in this particular village in Africa. So everybody came to the party, and her parents, of course, helped by inviting a lot of other people. And she came short. She fell short of the $300. She got like 260 or something. <clears throat> and... So then they decided what they would try to find other ways to, to make up the difference in, with this $300, $300. So they started you know, exploring other avenues. But one day, they were going driving on the freeway in Seattle, and there was an accident. And their car was rear-ended. And Rachel was really badly injured. And she was taken to the hospital, and she was in a coma. Well, the press in Seattle... Um, found out about the story and found out about her, her commitment and her intention and her desire to provide these, this water for um, this village in Africa. And so they, of course, published this story in the Seattle Times and, and people start sending in money. And one company sent in like $20,000 and all of a sudden she had like several hundred thousand dollars. And of course she didn't know about any of this because she was still in the coma. Well, once it got published in the Seattle Times, then the AP or Associated Press or somebody got a hold of it, and it became a national story on, what, TV and, and Yahoo and whoever else does those things. And um, the upside of the story is that they raised $1.2 million. That was the last figure. Rachel did die. She didn't recover from her injuries. But now... Over 62,000 people in villages in Mexico have clean water. All because of a little girl who wanted to have little children in Mexico, or in, uh, in, it could be Mexico, but in, in Africa have water. That's power. The power to affect change. That just really touches my heart because it's so amazing that she persisted and that, you know, and people were touched by her commitment. But every single one of us has that power within us. So the third key point that the author writes about is letting go of num what she calls numbing. We let go of our self-protective armor. And what we're numbing ourselves against are the feelings that we don't want to have. Feelings like anger, hurt, sadness, disappointment. All of those feelings that don't feel good, we don't want to feel at all. And so we numb ourselves to the existence of them. They just simply are not part of our experience. The irony is that we are the busiest, most in-debt, most obese, 
most medicated, most addicted adult population in history. And yet we are blessed with more prosperity, more food, better health. Everything is ours. Are we grateful? Not really. We don't really have a clue. We just want to keep going with these ideas of what life is supposed to be about, getting more. You know, if I get the next job, I'll be happy. If I get the next car, I'll be happy. If I get the next relationship, I'll be happy. We don't even know what happy is because we've so numbed ourselves to all of the qualities that we don't want to feel. We don't have the capability of feeling the good ones either because you cannot selectively numb out your feelings. You either feel or you don't. So when you're numbing out anger and fear, disappointment, you're also numbing out joy and harmony and peace and creativity especially. And what drives all this is the unwillingness to be vulnerable. Vulnerable. And what is vulnerability? What do you think vulnerability is? The, the definition that most people in her survey said was weakness. In our culture, weakness is the definition of vulnerability. But vulnerability is actually the ability to feel, to feel whatever it is that we're feeling. Some people would rather live in disappointment than feel disappointment. And then it becomes a lifestyle. You just live in disappointment all the time. Where do you live? Oh, I live on Disappointment Street. You know? I remember the first time that I actually recognized disappointment. And I was, I remember I was sitting in my living room and I was on the phone with a man that I was dating and, and he lived in San Jose and he was supposed to come and see me that weekend and he, for some reason, couldn't come. And I got off the phone and went, oh my God, I feel disappointed. <gasps> I was so excited that I felt it, that I knew what it was. I was just ecstatic and I was running around the house going, oh, I feel disappointed. Oh, it's so great. <laughs> and um, because I was on a quest to learn about what the feelings were that I was having because for about 25 years of my life, I numbed myself with alcohol, drugs, and sex so that I didn't feel any of those feelings. I didn't want to feel fear or anxiety or less than or unworthy or all of those things I didn't want to feel. So for 25 years at least, I did all of those things so I wouldn't have to feel any of them. And I didn't. But on the flip side, I didn't feel joy, didn't feel love, didn't feel happy, didn't feel any of those good things. I remember sitting in a, a meeting once when I was first in recovery, and on the wall opposite where I was sitting was a blackboard, and it had the word joy written on it. And I sat in that meeting, and I looked at that word, and I thought, what does that feel like? What does joy feel like? I was clueless. I did not have an idea what, didn't have any idea what it felt like. I could make up stuff, you know, I'd read about it, read other people felt it, you know, I was in those Christmas carols, you know, but I didn't know what it felt like. I couldn't conceive of what it felt like. I do know now. I know it a lot. I live there a lot. And someone at the first service, after the first service, was saying that joy is the creative essence 
that brings everything else into your life? I went, yes, it's exactly true. Joy does bring everything you desire into your life. But unless you're willing to feel the hurt, unless you're willing to feel the pain, unless you're willing to feel all those other things and let them go, then joy is going to always be a mystery for you too. She says, when we numb out the dark, we also numb out the light. And I remember when I first went into recovery too, they kept saying, you know, recovery is there's good news and bad news. The, the good news is you get to feel your feelings. And the bad news is you get to feel your feelings. I was like, I'm out of here. No, <laughs> this is not for me. So there's no escape from the creative power of your thinking. No escape. There's always an effect. So how your life evolves is a direct result of how you think. Your thinking determines what you're feeling, not the other way around. Someone after first service said, well, you know, what about hurt? And I said, well, your hurt starts here. You decide you're hurt, and then you feel it here. You decide you're going to be hurt, or you decide you're going to be angry, you decide you're going to be whatever it is, and then you can experience it here. Principle always works. Principle always works. As Star said, you know, God's always saying yes to you, always. If you don't want to feel anything, oh, okay, you got it. You're not going to feel anything. Do you want more joy? Okay, then let's feel the hurt. Got to have that too. Because got, you've got it all. You've got it all. You can have everything, every single thing. So we practice our faith. Spirituality, remember, is that underlying component of resilient people. And I know that you're all resilient. I know you are. You've proved that in your lives. So we practice forgiveness of ourselves and the people in our life that we say we love. Practicing forgiveness. We do meditation. We, that's when we listen, you know. And we pray. We pray every day. Focus prayer. We see a practitioner maybe if we're not sure about what we're doing and how we're feeling. We talk to someone else. We ask for help. We share what's going on with us internally because that allows us to be more grounded in who we really are. That place underneath, it's so beautiful. And we begin to change our minds. Change our minds. Just a simple thing. Just change your thinking. Like, change your thinking, it'll change your life. Believe me, it does. I want to share with you a quote from Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, who said, People are like stained glass windows. They sparkle and shine when the sun is out. But when the darkness comes, their beauty is revealed only if there is a light from within. So how is that light within you? Is that inner light of yours being covered up by all of these things you're unwilling to experience in your life? Is it covered up by all the places that are dark and scary? 
I really invite you to let go because I know that that light within you is so much brighter than any darkness that could ever come upon you, no matter what it looks like, no matter what it feels like, because you're greater than that. So I want to close with a quote by Ernest Holmes, and this is one of the wonderful meditations in the back of the Science Mind textbook. And he says, The light of spirit shines through me and illumines my path. You want to say that with me? The light of spirit shines through me and illumines my path. The light eternal is my guide. The light eternal is my guide and my protection. And my protection. In that light, there is no darkness at all. In that light, there is no darkness at all. It is a perfect light. Shining from the altar of a perfect love. O light and love within me. Thou art welcome. Light shines through me. And illumines my way. Now and always. Will you join me in prayer? So we take a deep breath and we go into that place that is lit from within. That place of the constant illumination of spirit that guides and directs every activity of life everywhere. That one infinite presence that is consistently loving and giving of itself to its creation. Just so it can experience more of what it is. And this essence of life is present in me. The light of spirit shines through me. It guides my thoughts, my words, my actions. It is expressing as me perfectly and magnificently in every way. As I affirm and know this for myself, I know this for each person in this room today. I know that each one of us is guided from that place within that is filled with absolute purpose and intention to live from the highest level we can, to open our hearts into a way of being that is that vibrancy of spirit shining its light into the lives of our family and friends. We are the beacon that lifts others up. We are that which guides others to follow in the footsteps that we have so magnificently taken. We are the ones. We are the ones. So I am knowing for each one here a willingness to be vulnerable, a willingness to just set the intention to experience life in all of its magnificence, the dark and the light, knowing that the dark is always dispelled by the light. And so in gratitude, affirming and knowing that each one of these precious beings in this room today is so filled with the life of spirit that they are lifted up automatically. Automatically, they are the love of God. And that love shines through easily, gently, sweetly, in every thought, word, and action. And so in gratitude, knowing this is the absolute truth about each one here, I release this word into the action of the law, and I know that it is done long before I have even uttered the words. I just let it be so. And together we say... And so it is. Mm. Namaste.